So, well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're doing okay. Uh, we are on our second week of our five-week series on the attributes of God. Uh, last week, uh, we covered um, God's glory and how that relates to us. Today, we're looking at God's goodness. Next week, we're studying God's holiness. The week after that, we are having an attribute of God's wrath. And then we're wrapping this up by looking at God's grace. And the driving premise behind this study is that one of the biggest problems we have in Western society isn't that we have too low a view of ourselves. I talked about that last week. Our problem isn't low self-esteem. The biggest problem we have in our culture is we don't have a high enough view of who God is. Our God esteem, in a sense, is way too low, and so we want to spend five weeks and get a glimpse of who this God is by studying His attributes. Now, before we move any further, I think it's really important to talk about what exactly is an attribute. We're assuming that, so we put this definition on the screen. An attribute is a quality or feature regarded as characteristic or an inherent part of someone or something. So an attribute is something critical or core to someone's characteristics, who they are. Now, the question follows from that is, well then, how many attributes does God have? Well, God has a lot, and, and classically, Christianity has divided God's attributes into two broad categories, His communicable attributes, those things that He shares with us, and His incommunicable attributes, the things that He doesn't share with us. And we use this language all the time in, in, our, in our culture, I guess, like, okay, so communicable de- disease is not a good illustration of that, but, but you get we, that that's, that's a, something that you can share. So we have this concept in our culture. God's communicable attributes are those ways He's like us or we're like Him. So we share in that His goodness, His reason, His mercy, His justice, His uh, uh, will, desire, anger, wrath. Those are ways we are like God. But then there are ways we are not like God, and those are His incommunicable attributes, the ones He doesn't share with us. And those are things like His eternality, His aseity, in other words, His self-existence. God is the only being or thing in the universe that doesn't require help from anything else to be. He's uh, His aseity, He just exists. And then there's His omnipotence, He's all-powerful, omniscient, He knows everything, omnipresent, He's everywhere He needs to be. Those are ways we are not like God. In essence, what we want to do in these five weeks is, uh, to, to use a metaphor we're familiar with, we want to look at God's profile page. We want to look at this profile page and learn what He's like. The one big distinction, however, is that everything on His page is actually true. It's not exaggeration. It's not embellished. There's no Photoshopped imagery there. This is all what He's really like. As a matter of fact, no matter what we say, we still will not be able to broadcast the completeness of who He is. And so while we'd like to say we're getting a vision of God, we're actually getting a glimpse a glimpse of His attributes. And this morning, this morning's attribute is particularly important. We're talking about God's goodness. Um, It is important to understand God's goodness to really understand who He is and navigate through this life. As a matter of fact, this attribute is so important that this is the exact attribute that Satan, in the book of Genesis chapter 3, Satan went after this very attribute of God, his goodness, in order to lead man into sin and destruction. 
Now, if you're, uh, this is going to be one of those sermons where we're going to be going back and forth through Scripture, so it's probably good. I'll, the important ones I put up on the screen, it's probably good for you to just write these notes down. But in Genesis chapter 3, when we see that the serpent approached Eve and said to Eve that she should eat of the forbidden fruit, let me use that word, she said, no, we're not to, we're not to eat of that fruit lest we die. And what did the serpent say back to her? Does anybody remember? He said, yeah, you're not going to die, uh-uh. God knows that in the day, the moment you eat that fruit, you're going to be like Him, knowing good from evil. Eve, that's not true. You're not going to die. God's holding out on you. You thought He was thinking of you. The reality is, He doesn't want you to eat because when you eat, you'll be like Him. Satan was going after, the serpent was going after the goodness of God, and she fell for it. Now, here's something that's really important. If you can be tempted to believe that God in His core is not good, there are 10,000 temptations, deceptions, and ways you can be tempted to be led astray from Him. Likewise, if you believe, if you are fully convinced that God in His core is good, There are 10,000 temptations, deceptions, and life choices that you cannot be tempted with or by. Does that make sense? Let me me illustrate this for you. Um, Just a couple illustrations. You're a businessman, and you have a big deal on the table. This is 30% of your annual income right on this one project that you're bidding on. You might get the project, but if you work with the numbers a little bit, hide an expanse, bury it somewhere here or there, you're going to get the project. Now, here's the question at hand that matters. Is God good enough to take care of me and get me this deal if I'm honest with these numbers? More importantly, is God good enough to take care of me even if I don't get this bid? What you believe about the goodness of God in that moment determines how you're going to write that proposal. Make sense? One more. Um, You're 35 years old. No foreseeable romantic prospects in the future, except this one individual at the office, but he or she's not a Christian, but at least he or she is interested in you. The question at hand is this, is God good enough to meet my needs even if I don't have a spouse? Is God good enough to fill my life with joy even without this individual? What you believe about the goodness of God in that moment will determine how you respond to that individual. You see, this belief, this attribute of God has massive implications for the way we just live our lives. Does that make sense? So today, I want to give you three reasons that we can believe that God is good. Here they are. The goodness of God seen in the creation, the goodness of God seen in His character, and the goodness of God seen in the cross. The goodness of God in creation, in His character, and in the cross. So let's start with the first one. The goodness of God seen in creation. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, seven times as it records God creating the creation, He says that it's good. Verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, 21, 35, and 31. God says, this is good, 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 this is very, very good. Sunsets, sunrises, rainfall, snowfall, a cool breeze, a warm day, 
the growth of grass, the smell of flowers, the spectrum of colors, the five experiences to enjoy it all, emotions, music, all around our creation, we can see that it testifies that God is good and gives good gifts. See, that's Paul's point in, in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. When Paul is talking about what, how the observable world testifies to the reality of God, Paul says, among other things, it reveals His power, His nature, and His goodness is what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. It says, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Creation testifies of the intrinsic beauty and goodness of God. Now, God's goodness is not simply seen in the aesthetic beauty that's in creation. His goodness is seen in the, in the functional structures of creation itself. Everybody remember freshman year in college when you learned about the hydrologic cycle? Okay, I, I remember because the, the concept of, wait a minute, there's tons of water that's floating in the sky. Tons of water just floating up there. We call them clouds, but that's what they are. Tons of water floating up there, and then when they get heavy enough, what do they do? They release the water into the ground, into the earth, into the grass, into the trees, and they come down back into the, the, the groundwater and make their way back into tributaries or rivers in the ocean, and then from the ocean, it evaporates back up into the sky until condensation takes place. They become clouds again, and the process happens all over. And then if the water is too dirty, lightning storms ionize the particles in the air and clean everything up. Are you kidding me? This is how it happens, right? Or what about uh, those of you who are much more science-minded, so excuse me if I butcher the word, it's the science of uh, isostases. It's the geologic balance of the tectonic plates, okay? As we float, as we float on magma, how there's a complete equilibrium of of our planet between the mountains and valleys and the canyons and everything keeps a wonderful balance with the gravity as we are, by the way, moving at 1,000 miles an hour. Did you realize by the time you entered this service to the time it ends, you would have traveled 1,000 miles? Doesn't quite feel that way, does it? The, or, uh, the, the axis of the earth, we turn how many hours in a day? 24. 24. What's the diameter of the planet? 24,000 miles and some change. We are spinning at a speed of 1,000 miles an hour. So you actually are doing something as you're sitting there. But not just that. We are spinning at 1,000 miles an hour on a planet that's traveling 66 thousand miles an hour. And it's amazing your Starbucks coffee doesn't just fly off the table every time you put it down. Everything stays perfectly balanced with the gravitational pull and the geologic structures of our tectonic plates. They're not freaking out because everything's perfectly balanced working together with nature and the physics. It's astounding. Furthermore, the beauty and complexity of God's design and creation just shows this intense, deliberate goodness of God. Now, I know most of you haven't been thinking about this week, but I was wondering this week, why doesn't a giraffe blow its brains out when it drinks water? 
giraffes, beautiful animals, right? Amazing animals. Why doesn't their brains blow out every time they bend down to drink water? So here's a giraffe, and the brain from the heart is roughly eight feet from in a typical average giraffe. The heart of a giraffe is about, it can grow up to two feet long and weigh up to 23 pounds. This super pump is pumping blood at a pressure to travel eight feet against gravity. That is a lot of pressure. But when a giraffe bends down to drink water, that super pump is not fighting gravity anymore. It is pumping all that pressurized blood with gravity. So every time that giraffe should bend down to drink water, what should happen? His brain should blow right out. I know you're not thinking about it, but when we see this, I remember all these years of National Geographic, Mutual of Omaha. I mean, I wasn't thinking about this as a kid, but I kind of started realizing this in biology. How does this work? Guys, get this. In the giraffe's neck are multiple uh, spigot-like valves that as the head descends, they close off the flow of blood. And so when he puts his head down, that immense pressure stops. Okay, that's pretty amazing. But then why is it when a lion comes to eat the giraffe and the giraffe gets up and starts to run, it doesn't fall, pass out in five feet, right? What happens when we get up too quick? We, when, we don't, when we don't have enough oxygenated blood in our brain, we pass out. That's sometimes how I feel up here. It's just there's not enough going on. Get this, get this. When the giraffe's head is down, the last pump right below the brain allows enough blood to get into a sponge-like uh, membrane that soaks up oxygenated blood, so that as the giraffe's head begins to come back up and all the valves open up again, there's enough oxygenated blood being fed into the brain at that moment so he doesn't pass out every time when he walks five feet. And then when all the valves are open, that sponge is drained, everything's working fine. And, and that is how God designed a giraffe. Now, I could talk about the bombardier beetle, but um, it's, anyone know what about, ever heard of the bombardier? Can you imagine? This bug shoots out a chemical at 212 degrees Fahrenheit from its backside, and it's fine when it does it, right? It's not fine for the other insects. The point I'm making at is that God's goodness, let's reel it back in, sorry. God's goodness in design just reveals it, not, self, not just in the aesthetic or the functional, as we've been talking about, but even in the delightful. Yeah, so, so we can see that creation testifies of his aesthetic beauty. We talked about the functional beauty, but there's just even a delightful beauty. I can prove it in one word. Bacon. <laughs> right? We have these taste buds that can taste bacon. Now, I was talking to Lori this week. And I said, look, there's no purpose for taste buds. Now, she, as a good wife, she was trying to play devil's advocate and thinking it from all angles. She says, well, maybe there's an evolutionary purpose for taste buds in that they helped us know what they should eat and shouldn't eat. And I said, that doesn't make sense. Because all the stuff that's good for us tastes like, well, you know, broccoli and alfalfa sprouts. But all the stuff that's bad is fantastic. So it would not make any sense from an evolutionary perspective. Taste buds are there for the sheer delight of tasting things. You know how many hundreds of varieties of cheeses there are? I mean, God could have just made cheese and that would have been great. But he made hundreds of varieties of cheese. And it's no coincidence that so much of the Christian life takes place around what? 
not, not necessarily cheese, I've set that up incorrectly, but um, in France it would, but here, it's just food. So much of our life takes place around food. You know, so, so the next time you're eating that piece of bacon, you should be know you're being loved by God right then and there, okay? When you eat that bacon, you should be saying, yes, you are loving me here. I'm tasting the grizzle and the sweet flavor. I just need to worship right now, you know? But that's true, isn't it? God's goodness is seen in creation. Just looking at these three broad categories, the aesthetic, the functional, the delightful, it all proclaims he's a good God. But it's not just in creation that we see that He is good. See, theologians would call that a common revelation, but we have something called special revelation, His Word, that testifies that the goodness of creation is just a reflection of His good character. And that's our second point this morning, that the goodness of God is seen in His character. Now, we could list dozens and dozens of verses to make the point, but that's not necessary. We're in two or three good ones will do just as well. So, I put them up on the screen. Here's a couple of great verses. Psalm 118, verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and do good. Mark 10 and verse 18 from the New Testament, no one is good except God alone. Each of these verses and the dozens of others that are just like it establish that God is, uh, not only does God do good, but that He's the actual metric and essence of what good actually is. Did you notice that in Psalm 119, 68 particularly? You are good and you do good. In other words, it's not as if there is some external standard of goodness out there that God somehow meets, and because He meets that standard, we ascribe to Him that He's good. That's not it at all. God Himself is the definition of what is good, so that anything that closely resembles His definition, we describe as good. You see the difference here? It's one thing to say that God meets the standard. It's entirely another to say God Himself is the standard. That's what the Bible says, that He is what is good. When you think of good, the closer it is to God, the more good it actually is. Furthermore, in the Scripture, we see that God's goodness is closely related to His other characteristics. For example, His, his patience, His mercy, and His grace. So, so God's mercy to others is His grace extended to those who are in distress. God's grace is His goodness extended to those who deserve only judgment. God's patience is His goodness extended to those who continue in their sin over long, prolonged periods of time. Now, we don't want to um, say that there are a hierarchy of attributes that function within God. Maybe later in this series, we're going to talk about how God is a unity. The New Testament teaches us that. So, there, it's not like these attributes are competing, but there is a sense in which there are organizing attributes that all the other characteristics of God either, I mean, kind of flow from, and God's glory, God's goodness, and God's grace would certainly be three organizing attributes of who He is. Now, someone say, might say, well, what about… Um, God is love. That's a very popular one. John, 1 John 4. That's true. But Deuteronomy 4 also say God is a consuming fire. I always find it interesting that 
that we always focus on the God is love, but we forget the Bible also says God is a fire, right? But both of those, both of those attributes are an extension of His goodness. God is love because it is good to love. God is a fire because it is good to come against wrong with such fierce ferocity. That's the context of Deuteronomy 4. So His being love and His being like a consuming fire, both are an extension of His goodness. Now, I was just talking to somebody after first service, and we had a great dialogue. It says, I struggle with the goodness of God in light of some of the things that happened in history, and they were talking about the Holocaust. Um, so, so, here are I want to raise two objections that have always been raised against this claim that God is good. And these are massive topics that are worthy of an entire Sunday, if not their own series. Um, And and sometime in this year, we'll do a a series on suffering. The two objections are the problem of of evil and suffering. Uh, we, We can't deal with them today. I'll just make two comments in passing on one on each one, simply to show that those of us who affirm the goodness of God are not unaware of these two objections. And yet, even though we are aware of evil and suffering, we can attest that God is in fact good. Right? So, just as a pastoral note, if you know anybody who is enduring some kind of evil or some kind of suffering, this is not, what they need is compassion and encouragement, right? They don't need a well-thought-out argument, right, that I'm going to present now. But what we want to do as a church is we want to have well-thought-out reasons that make sense of evil and suffering in the world so that when it happens to us, and it will happen to every one of us, that's something we all will share in common. Everyone in this room will suffer, and everyone in this room will bump up against the evil in this world. That's just the reality. But we will have categories in mind so that we will not be caught flat-footed that we will not be blindsided, and, but yet we will recognize God's Word, the Christian worldview, understands this and can make sense of it. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so here's the first one, the problem of evil. Um, and, and this sounds, this may sound odd to you, so, so let me just back up a little bit. The problem of evil is, is sounds technical because it actually is an expression. Um, the first time we read of this in literature it was in the third century BC. A Greek philosopher named Epicurus said this, If God is sovereign and all-powerful and He's good, and yet evil exists, either God cannot be sovereign and all-powerful or else He would have taken care of evil or He cannot be good because evil exists. Does that make sense? So in some sense, people deny, and this is the issue I had after first hour, and, and this gentleman's working through it, he chose to say that I'd rather believe that God's good and I'm going to sacrifice His sovereignty. So God hates evil, but he's just not quite strong enough to deal with it yet. The other view is, I'm going to hold on to God's sovereignty, but I'm going to have to give up his goodness because he can definitely take out evil. He's just maybe not good enough to do it. Does that make sense? So, this is what's been classically called the problem of evil. Christianity historically has believed both God is sovereign and God is all good, okay? And I'm going to explain. So, I'm not going to touch on the fact that God is sovereign. We're focusing on that God is good. The problem of evil does not disprove the assurance that there's the God is good. Let, let me just, I, I want to set that up so you know it when I talk about the problem of evil. So, let me explain this. Here we go. 
The problem with the problem of evil, and by the way, for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, we can talk more later, but in a, in a, amongst philosophers, this is no longer an issue. This, all philosophers agree that the problem of evil is not a tenable argument against God's existence. They gave that up already, and partly because of this argument I'm going to talk about right here. So the problem with the problem of evil is this, is that without an absolute standard of good, you cannot even have an understanding of what evil is to define something as evil. In other words, you couldn't be able to object to evil unless you concede that there is an absolute of good, a good, that you are using to contrast with something that you deem evil. Without such a good, without such a standard, all you have is preference. So, you could say you don't prefer that countries commit genocide, but you could never say that it was evil or wrong unless good and right actually existed that you are using to contrast evil against. See, this, this touches on issues of morality and truth because goodness, truth, and morality are interrelated and they have all their genesis in God's character Himself. Now, I can't say more than just kind of throw that out there, but I just simply wanted to state that the problem of evil does not pose a problem in affirming the goodness of God. Right? In fact, in order to have even a meaningful conversation about a category called evil, you need an absolute standard of objective good to even understand what evil is that you think it is, right? Now, the Christian worldview has always held out that that objective standard, that objective good, is the character of God Himself. That's, that's the, considered the problem of evil. Now, let's talk about suffering. Historically, Christians have been very good at suffering because historically, we have just done a lot of it around the globe. Right? One of the downsides of God's rich blessings on affluent and free nations like ourselves is that we don't think about suffering as much as we once used to, so that when we encounter real suffering, we get caught off guard a little bit more than we once did. Historic, classic Christianity has believed that God's purposes in suffering has always served three simultaneous and interconnected purposes. Number one, it was, it, suffering crushes any sense of self-dependence or kind of idolat- self-idolatry. What do I mean by that? If you have ever gone through, in, in a room like this, I know that's the case, extreme suffering of some sort, it really just kind of strips you of any sense of you being the master of your own destiny, doesn't it? If you've ever endured suffering of any type, significant you are stripped of this kind of almost prideful reliance on your own resources and your own abilities. You're laid low in a way that very few things can do to us. And I'll bet you if we were to share in this room, and I know there's been some deep suffering, I'll bet you if we were to share in this room that suffering, I think we would also simultaneously hear that that is the point at which God brought about some amazing growth in you. And though it was hard, you would actually not trade that experience for what it brought out of you in relation to to God. Suffering crushes our sense of self-dependence and almost the arrogance we have of our own abilities. Secondly, to those who take that route and understand that, granted, many people suffer and they don't get there, do they? It becomes a very embittering and hardening process. But for those who 
allow themselves to be stripped of self-dependence and idolatry of the self, it brings about sanctification. You start to realize that, oh, everything I thought I needed, I actually don't need, and I'm coming to realize the fundamental truth of Christianity that God is what I need more than anything. And I've been stripped of all these other things, and I realize this is all I've ever needed to begin with. The second point is that it brings about sanctification. And the third point, based on points one and two, is as a result of that, it brings about greater glory to God because of the maturing process of His people. So it crushes our self-reliance, it it promotes sanctification, and it brings more glory to God. Now, God's goodness, so, so I hope it's clear that God's goodness and the problem of evil and suffering are not mutually exclusive. Actually, the more you think about evil and the more you think about suffering, it really actually makes you want to, need to believe more firmly in the inherent goodness of God because the only other alternative is despair and hopelessness. If you've ever read any of these existentialist authors who denied God, you know exactly that's where they landed. So the more we think about evil and suffering, far from dispelling our belief in a good God, drives us to demand that there must be a good God. In a fallen world, here's the reality of the Christian faith, God is calling His people, you and I, to be active agents that combat both evil and suffering in this world of all types, individual, corporate, political, uh, business, ethical, spiritual, everything in between, Christians are called to combat that evil and suffering that is in the world. God cannot be tamed. We we might want to think of just a good God, but a good God that doesn't confront evil and suffering is not the kind of God we want. And the primary means by which He confronts it is through the lives of those He's called from it, you and I. You see, God is good, and this is an attribute we're not going to talk about, but God's also dangerous, and that's what makes it so good. One of the the best lines in modern literature that captures this element was in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? It's that scene, or if you saw the movie scene, or if you read the book, it's that page where Lucy, one of the children, sees Aslan for the first time. And if you don't know the story, Aslan is the, the, the represent, is like the godlike representative, the redeemer figure in the book. And he's this huge lion that's gracious and, and speaks. And Lucy sees Aslan, and she says to Beaver, is, is, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver looks at her, confounded, and says, well, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. Look at him. Right? But then he says, but he's good. And that makes all the difference in the world. And we don't see the goodness of God any more clearly in this fallen, dangerous world than we do in our third and final point. The goodness of God seen in the cross. Now, without doubt, this is probably the most uh, shocking statement I've made today, even the, the giraffe's brains being blown out. That this one's more shocking, that God's goodness is seen in the cross. And the fact that some of you may not think so only goes to prove my point. Here's what I'm getting at. Nothing, nothing could have been more vile, more reprehensible, more disgusting, more humiliating than the symbol of the cross to first-century Christians. 
The cross represented everything that was wrong with the world. The oppressive power of Rome, injustice, human cruelty, torturous shame, a cross stank of human urine, human feces, and was decorated with dried blood and the torn pieces of flesh of the victims that hung on it. That's the cross that that we have so ornately hung in our sanctuaries throughout the world. But we do so because Jesus Christ died on one. And because of that, for the last 2,000 years, the cross now is a symbol of faith, of hope, and love. It marks our grave sites. It hangs in our homes. It's the visible sign of courage and help in time of need. You see, to sum up, God made a perfect, amazing, and good creation, but it went all sideways when sin entered the world, and with sin, evil and suffering. But because of God's good character, He determined to do something about it, and He sent His Son, because somebody has to pay for all the evil and suffering. Somebody has to suffer for allowing this to happen. But no one can do that except God Himself. So he sends his own son to give his life in exchange for those who would trust that he's actually good enough to make all the wrongs right and reclaim creation through the cross. So in one very real sense, the transformation of the image of the cross itself from a symbol of death to a symbol of life is itself symbolic of the transformation that God performs on all those who trust in his goodness. The cross then becomes both the symbol of and means of God's goodness to humanity. God is good, and and everything, everything He does is good. The world wants people to believe, notice the air quotes, in a good God, but in a kind of benign uh, Santa Claus-ish kind of way. You don't worship a God like that. That's the kind of God that you make demands of. That's the kind of God you expect to do things for you. The Bible wants the world to believe in a good God, in a fierce, powerful, beautiful, deliberate, king of the jungle kind of way. That's not a God you're going to push around, right? That is the kind of God you fall down and worship. And doing that is good for us. Next week, we're going to talk about His holiness that is very connected to His goodness. We'll see you then. Let's pray right now. Father, we thank You as we have looked again into Your Word, as we did last week, and saw how Your gloriousness marks who you are and is good for us, and we see this morning your goodness all throughout creation in your character and even in the cross, and it's all for our ultimate good. Lord, you are good and you do good. Father, help us to believe that. Help us to make that a foundational belief of who you are in your character, that you are a good, good God. We know you can do that in the power of Jesus' name. We thank you. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.